Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to Week to Week. This is the political roundtable of the Commonwealth Club of California. It's also your group therapy session for the 2016 election. (laughs) This is Monday, August 22nd, 2016. This week, uh, we learned that uh, Donald Trump's campaign, its Colorado office in the Denver area, is being run, this is true, by a 12-year-old. For real, it's an actual 12-year-old by the name of Weston Eimer. Eimer. Um, We also heard today that Donald Trump is getting foreign policy advice from Michelle Bachman. So... (laughs) Write your own joke. I just put those two uh, unrelated (laughs) items out there. Thanks for joining us here in San Francisco. I'm John Zipperer, uh, your host for the program. And today we're, of course, going to talk about more of the presidential election. We're also going to talk about some California politics, um, the economy's role in this campaign, as well as kind of a grab bag of other political issues that, that are in the news. As always, I note that the Commonwealth Club represents people of a wide variety of views, so uh, any opinions that are expressed here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Let's meet our panelists for today. Starting on the far end is Carson Bruno. He's a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. He's on Twitter at CarsonJFBruno. (laughs) Next to him, you've already met, of course, Melissa Kane, a political analyst at CBS San Francisco. She's on Twitter at Melissa Kane one And Dr. James Taylor, Director of African-American Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of San Francisco. And I've been ribbing him for not being on Twitter. It turns out he is on Twitter. So you can find him at, at Uti. That's O-O-T-T-I-E. That's right. <laughs> that's my family name. That's what it is, inside family name. <laughs> Uh, There are question cards throughout the room, of course. Write down some questions. Uh, We'll pick them up, and I'll try to ask as many of them as possible during the program. On to today's program, or well, yeah, on to the roundtable part. Um, Let's start with the presidential election. Let's start with, what would you call it, Donald Trump's relaunch, his rebranding, his recalibration, his firing a bunch of his staff. Um, Carson, what, what do you make about what Donald Trump's done over the past week, week and a half. Um, it, it was necessary. A, a, some, something had to happen. Mm-hmm. What that something was was up for debate for, amongst a lot of people, uh, depending on kind of who you talk to and who you support and, or don't support. Uh, but something had to happen, uh, especially after the Manafort Ukrainian uh, dealings came out where he was apparently using shoveling money around the barriers that we have for lobbying in D.C. to try to get pro-Russian Ukrainian lobbyists into D.C. to try to change kind of our foreign policy. Now, was that the where he was linked to possibly $12 million yes. yeah. off the books? Yeah. So uh, after that, 
you know, it's kind of hard not to do something. I mean, even, I think even Trump knew that. Um, and this is a guy who doesn't really have many political instincts. Um, so it had to, something had to happen. Now the question is, was what happened the right move? Now some in the kind of the alt-right, the alternative right movement, uh, the Breebarts of the world are you know, cheerleading the fact that Steve, uh, Steve Bannon and, um, is now the campaign chairman, or I forget what title he actually has. CEO. 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 Yeah, this is also a thing. There's, at one point, there was a campaign chairman, a CEO, and a campaign manager. Now, tell me who's in charge in that situation, <laughs> including then the candidate himself. So who's in charge? So that, that's Hair a whole, and makeup. Yeah, right? That's a whole different uh, can of beans. So something had to happen. Now, of course, the alt-right is thrilled because their man is now kind of leading the charge. They have their candidates. They've kind of taken over the party in many, many cases. Um, is it going to really change anything? Probably not. It seems like they're going to double down on what they've been doing, which some people are arguing, you know what, that's all he can really do. Um, so you might as well just kind of continue doing what you've been doing. It got him this far. You know, what's the worst that could happen? Do you feel like this feeds in, the, the, especially the, the Breitbart connection, feeds into the idea that he's got this agenda that's either in lieu of or in addition to a presidential agenda of creating a, a media company or platform for himself and for his beliefs as well. This is, this is the rumor that uh, Donald Trump is really starting a Donald Trump, Trump cable channel. Right. There's, here's the one thing, the, Donald Trump's biggest weakness from, the day, from day one when he rode down that escalator is the fact that he has absolutely zero humility. Zero. <laughs> um, and he's made this entire campaign about himself, for good or for worse. Uh, again, depending on who you talk to, his supporters think it's great. Everyone else in the world thinks it's terrible. Um, but it has always been about himself. And so, no, I, I don't, I, I, I think that he's gonna, he's gonna do something after he loses the election. Um, and why not try to milk this for all it's worth at the end of the day? And it's very possible it, it he kind of becomes a kind of an alternative to the Fox News kind of conservative uh, news network. I, um, I was going so. to ask this as a news quiz question, but don't worry, I have extras. Um, <laughs> saw today that his family has earned $7.5 million extra so far during this campaign mm -hmm. because the campaign is using Trump businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, it like brings right new me yeah, yeah, it's new meaning to the idea of a self-funded right. campaign. Yeah. I mean, it's a internally re uh, perpetual it, it, motion. It, it starts, uh, I mean, and I'd love to get Melissa's opinion, especially from the, the legal standpoint, because it begs the question, you know, is, is this stuff legal? <laughs> Um, is we, it is it allowed? We've never seen this before. Actually, you've never had a candidate who also owns the hotel in which they're holding meetings that they're paying with out of their you know out of their campaign coffers. We've just never had one. Certainly not at this level. So uh, the answer is um, yes. It seems to be legal for now, um, though you know, it may require some closing of a loophole that really no one realized was there because no one's ever, again, we've never seen one that like owns the golf course that they're um, taking people. Like Trump Ice yeah. was the one, was one of the vendors, Trump Ice. And, and I think people Google forget it. this is the third time, <laughs> this is actually the third time that Trump has won a run. And uh, this is the, sec the, first, the second time he actually said he turned a profit in running for, for the office, and so for him, this is a, an important leap forward in terms of a business venture, as well as you know the accidental happening of perhaps being elected, but yeah. he clearly was <laughs> focused. 
And you think, do you think it would be a disappointment then if he got elected? Because I think I don't think I, I've said this before locally that you know that office, and when you sort of look at the requirements of the office and the limits of the office, the yeah. office is very limited by checks and balances, separation of powers. The in fact, the most important book on on presidential power in in American political science history is a book by, written by Richard Neustadt. And he basically says that the only power that the United States president really has is the power of personal persuasion, the not the power of the office, not the power of the stick, but the, the, the power to RV. persuade mm -hmm. 100 other equals in the Senate and 435 other people in the House that they have to agree. And there's a common ground that they can make and you know, meet at where they can further legislation in common. But for Donald Trump to think and this happened to Truman, and this happened to Kennedy, and this happened to Obama. With Truman, he was shocked that people, when he said jump, didn't say how high, Mr. President. Kennedy, you remember with the Khrushchev missile crisis, it was exposed that we ended up having missiles 90 miles away from, from Russia over in Turkey. And Kennedy had ordered them removed already, and he was shocked that they weren't removed. And Obama came into that office, assuming that with his charisma, he would be able to change the world all over again. And Obama, you know, ended up... The shortest presidency, I argue, that Barack Obama had a two-year presidency. Uh, basically, after the Tea Party revival or, or emergence in 2010, the effective presidency of Barack Obama was over, um, it really, uh, in terms of real uh, governance and policy. Uh, so, well, and, and that's, that's been a recurring complaint of other presidents. Yes. I mean, George W. Bush yes. has said that, too. It's yeah. like... You get in yeah. there, and it's not like when yeah. you press a button, yeah. something so, happens. So Trump's ego yeah. is, is, is adverse with the, the requirements and the limits of the office itself. It's almost like he doesn't know much about it. He does not. He <laughs> sees from afar. He projects right. it as a historical, I right. think, um, opportunity. But I don't think he understands yeah. um, what the boredom of the office is. like people that are so eager in undergraduate and out of high school. I want to go to law school because I can talk real good. And then they find out it's more about good thinking and good writing. And it's really tedious. And Did not, I meet you in high school? <laughs> <laughs> it's not all, you know, L.A. law in the courtroom litigating, tearing it down. It's a whole different reality. Right. I think Trump has to face that. And, it's, and it brings up a good point. I mean, he, he just doesn't know. He doesn't not know what the office is about. He doesn't understand what campaigning is about too. If you, if you look at the most recent July uh, fundraising numbers and expenditure numbers of the two campaigns, the top three biggest uh, expenditure items for Trump and Clinton, so Trump is first, uh, digital consulting and online advertising at 44%, then air travel, 15%. So we go from 44 to 15% um, for the, the top three biggest items for him, and then merchandise at 9%. Those are the top three items where he spent money on in, in the month of July. Clinton, uh, on, on the other hand, goes media buys for 66% of her July expenditures, then the payroll benefits, payroll taxes at 12%, and travel at 6%. Clinton is trying to win an election. I don't know what Trump's Tr doing. Trump is, winning in a Charlie, <laughs> Trump is winning in a Charlie Sheen kind of way. That's how I yeah. see him winning, you know. Okay. He thinks he's winning, winning. and it's not winning. Right. But, yeah. but, but he is, I mean, for someone who's spending so little on sort of ground troops, he is hanging with her in the polls. Like you would think someone spending, you know, we've got one person who's got 800 employees and one person who's got 80. There would be a tenfold difference between how they're doing in the polls. And yet that's not what we're seeing. It's yeah, not yeah. translating whatever he's, and I'm not saying he's doing all the right things, but I'm saying, you know, 
she's doing things a sort of traditional way. He's doing it a non-traditional way. He's hanging with her National, pretty good. Nationally, yes. But nationally. Look, I mean, and, but, and, and look, even though he's down in a, in a number of swing states, he's down single digits. And when you look, you know, add in the margin of error, it's not really that she's not killing it. Yeah. Uh, and the way you might think uh, a candidate would running like a machine like she's running versus his very sort of interesting but but the problem and i agree with you but the problem i think trump has when you look at many of these uh, polls he's in the 30s and that's not good i mean if he's in the 40s 42 43 there's room for you know you you might be able to close the gap but when you're down in 36 34 percent somebody doesn't like you if you're getting 30 (laughs) percent and and of course across the board every major ethnic population in this country (laughs) Um, outside of men, white men, uh, do not like Trump and do not like him intensely. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing is, I mean, what's keeping the numbers so tight, and I agree, they are tight. They've, they've tightened by three points since uh, Clinton's DNC like high, po- po- uh, post-DNC uh, peak. Um, it's the fact that they're both really not liked. Now, Trump is much more not liked. See, uh, but-, but Clinton, still, she's underwater by 10 points in favorable poll or favorability also. So it, he has the benefit of running against the least liked Democrat ever, but she has the benefit of running against the least liked candidate ever. So it helps. I think it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's phenomenal the way Hillary Clinton has become so unpopular in the last three years. When she was the most popular woman on the planet from 1994 to 2013. Everyone's forgotten that Hillary Clinton was championed by Donald Trump voters when she was running <laughs> against the black guy. Everybody, remember Puma, Party, Unity, My A? Remember that? Those are the same Reagan Democrats that refused to support Obama that supported Hillary that are now mad at Hillary and supporting Trump. These people are confused. Yeah. <laughs> and anybody who's relying on them to deliver Donald Trump because they're angry young people or angry middle-aged people, again, as a political scientist, you don't rely on powerless people or people who are dispossessed, unfortunately, and this is against my own politics, to actually mobilize politically because they're discouraged by their condition and their predicament. So many of these people who are crying and out for help in the form of Donald Trump's campaign um, uh, you know, are in this un- unfortunate it, predicament. It, it, you are seeing a number of folks saying, Win or lose, yeah. probably lose. Trumpism, or the, or the, the, the what he's surfaced, to use the common term, is is going to be with us. Um, so we'll have plenty of further conversations about this in the years <laughs> to come. Uh, someone actually writes and says, "You're talking awful lot about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Hillary Clinton and her health. Is this a real? Have you seen? Well, Rudy Giuliani, you know, talking about her mental health and such. Is this all just campaign?" silliness or we'll be back with more here on friends on fridays with john zipperer of commonwealth club right after this you're listening to the progressive voices channel on tune in please help us grow tell your friends to tune in to progressive voices find out more at progressivevoices.com babe i think we're ready we're really doing this yeah i'm ready for our family So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. 
but work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. That's the one of the things where I, I go back to this humility thing for the Trump campaign. They have so much that they could hit the Clintons in, in general as a couple and a family over and Hillary herself on, um, that they are choosing her health or something like that as, A, there's no way for you to ever really be sure what's going on there. I mean, there's doctor you know, patient privilege. So if something is happening, then you have no clue of actually being able to prove or disprove it, really. Um, so why focus on this conjecture? When, especially when there's the Clinton Foundation stuff, the emails continue to be a point of contention. Um, and some, so much other issues that you could really go after her about, but they're trying to make it, again, all about Trump and Trump trumps everything at the end of the day, um, which kind of takes away from the fact that they're running against someone. <laughs> well, 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 someone else does ask about uh, the Clinton Foundation, and do you ever see them actually shutting it down, considering the controversy? Should they consider that? They sh I mean, they absolutely should. Why? I, I just think it creates too many questions. The one thing as a politician you never want to do, and I've said this multiple times, I think, on the stage, is to reinforce the perceived caricature that you have in the public. The Clintons have a perceived, for better or worse, I mean, for right or wrong, that they're kind of shady. They're kind of doing something behind the scenes, not really being totally honest with you, just telling you kind of what you, they legally have to tell you. Um, and that, that perception is there. I mean, it's been there for, for decades now, um, going back to when Bill was uh, governor of Arkansas. So they, I understand why they're not doing it, because they, they definitely have, they have, they have a hubris about themselves also. They, they, want, they like being you know, at, at the center of attention. In, as much in their as, defense, they've also created a foundation that's raised billions of dollars. Which ten, that only helps 10%, a lot of people. Only 10% has really been donated to charity. So, I mean, it's, it's been used as kind of a post-presidency thing. Um, right, so, right. I mean, there, there are, again, arguments on both sides of whether the effectiveness of the foundation has actually been good. But at the end of the day, she's running for the most powerful office in the, in the world. Right. And you can't have any semblance of some sort of corruption happening at, at the center of that. Um, and so they can always start something new, probably even better, after she wins the presidency, serves eight years, and comes out. Um, so why put up with all of this? Um, that could just be a distraction for the entire presidency of the first woman president. Okay, well... And, right. then, and then making the adjustments and trying to react to the criticisms make them look bad, too, of Bill Clinton stepping down but not right away. Well, why do you need to step down if there's nothing wrong with it in the first place? Why do you need to distance yourself and your family if it wasn't corrupt? Why are you now making these decisions to avoid the appearance of corruption right. uh, they, if they, it wasn't corrupt from the outset? I would, I would 
put forth that they could close down the Clinton Foundation and something else would be put forward as being, yeah. you know, I mean, there's been a machine, I'm going to sound like a Clinton <laughs> campaign person here, but there's been a machine going after her for decades. Right. And but she's serving it up. <laughs> Like on, you know, unassisted, True. you True. know, with this email True. server thing, with this, you know, with the foundation, you don't have to do this. And and I'm not saying they shouldn't try to do good in the world, but you could raise money for another foundation. You you know, yeah. I, I'm surprised she didn't do this while she was secretary of state. As soon as you know, like I'm running for president, you have to shut down the appearance of impropriety because, you know, you've been in the public in the eye for so you've been in the arena, as they as they said at the convention, you know that you know this is coming. Like, get it together. Shut it down. You're never going to be able to convince but, but, people that you took money from a, from this government and didn't do them favors. Shut it down. Show that you have some friends in your life who are not in politics, who are in your ear. I don't know about you guys. I got I got two brothers who will be like, you're an idiot. Like, they will tell, they're civilians. They will tell me when, <laughs> when you know, when I'm doing something that looks bad. Um, but the echo chamber that these guys are in um, is give is allowing them to, you know, and I, maybe that's because they've, you know, been so fancy for so long, but it's allowing them to do things that even Democrats are like, dang it, you know, why did you do? What yeah. did you think secretary yeah. of state at gmail.com was going to lead to? Like, how did you think that that was going to be like a cool thing? That was going to be fine when you run for president. Like, don't serve it up. And yes, there's a teams of people digging for anything. But but but, you know, she's making it fairly easy. At but, this but, point. but I would say that in and of itself, even though Trump and, and the RNC can prosecute this, you have to remember Tony Resco. Right. Anybody remember Tony Resco? See, you don't remember Tony Bresco. Some of you do, right? Remember Obama's uh, housing deal yeah. where he bought this property in Chicago, you know, with this weird money. Remember all of that? Most of us have forgotten about Tony Bresco already. I'm glad you don't remember because that's what I think will happen to the Clinton Foundation issue at some point as uh, it becomes subordinate to more pressing and still, I think, interesting issues that are going to emerge with these new 15,000 emails that have been ordered to be released before October, forget November, uh, by a federal judge today. Uh, here's a fun question. How do you expect a Hillary Clinton presidency to be different from the Bill Clinton presidency? You know, there, obviously there was a lot of kind of lead in thinking, oh, this is Clinton part two, but she's, she is a different person. She has taken some different positions. It's a different time. Any thoughts on that? Oh, well, I do. So today, I'm sure you guys have read, is the 20th anniversary of the welfare reform that Bill Clinton signed into law. And um, he's acknowledged that there were some shortcomings with it. So is she. She's also acknowledged, and I think they both have uh, some shortcomings with um, uh, trade agreements like NAFTA and even um, Cl Bill Clinton's moves on the, the Glass-Steagall Act. So I think, you know, it, it's not necessarily that it'll be um, something dramatically different, but you, if you think of it as a more mature uh, a presidency that learned, I, you know, ideally, uh, this is how the Cl a Clinton you know, person might sell it to you, uh, somebody like a Bill Clinton, but one who's learned from what happened in, uh, you know, during his presidency, has seen the after effects and can sort of course correct accordingly. But, but dramatically, no, probably not. I think it depends a lot on the Congress that she has. Um, particularly initially, you know, but also after the midterms. Those two years. Yeah those, yeah, those two years, especially, yeah. If if Republicans can hold on and save the Senate and keep the House, House is definitely easier for them to, to retain. Um, then 
her presidency starts off a lot different than I think that she would probably want it to, um, and especially the Democrats would want it to, and the, the Bernie Sanders fans would want her to. Um, now, if she has the Senate, um, and there's it's razor thin margins in the House, I think you see a completely different presidency at the onset, um, and those things will will affect kind of how the midterms happen in 2018. Um, definitely, that then determines again kind of what does a or a triangulation need to happen and um, shift one way or the other. So a lot, a lot for her really depends on what happens down ballot. A lot more so than Trump for, for, for many reasons. But um, the, the Republicans, kind of what they do down ballot is really, really important. I would, I would just add that I think political context or political milieu has a great deal to do with shaping presidencies independent of whether these two people were married. Let's just make Hillary not Bill's wife for now okay. and just as an emergent political person and candidate uh, and, and say, how does Hillary Clinton, you know, as a potential president, compared to previous presidents like Obama or previous Democrats like Bill Clinton, I think if you look at Bill Clinton's context, it was the economy stupid, right? In 1991, 92, uh, you had urban unrest in Los Angeles that exploded yeah. intensely. And it was that incident in LA 92 that I think had a great deal to do with impacting why George Bush came back from Gulf War at the 90 plus percent approval rating in February and was voted out of office by the electorate that following November, which is unheard of, winning a war and being elected out of office. Yeah. But that happened to Bush because of the economy and some of the yeah. issues, the political unrest, the sense of America balkanizing and po the polarization, the sense of polarization that we had then we have now. And I think these things will, try, will influence Hillary and real quickly, What's really interesting is Hillary and Bill Clinton, especially Bill Clinton's policies, uh, welfare reform, uh, the mass incarceration, um, expanding police officers who are the command officers of the black, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is marching against the 300,000 police officers that Bill Clinton put on the office are now their command 20 years later. Um, and so I think, and I've argued this on black radio where the black audience responded to me and told me I was foolish for suggesting that blacks vote for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump because they have her where they need her to be politically, because she owes them because of these offenses and these harms uh, and that have policy impacts on the African-American community. Who, can, who better to have uh, uh, listening to you now than Hillary Clinton? Hillary Clinton took and co-opted Bernie Sanders' Black Lives Matter agenda as much as she could. She had those mothers from the Black Lives Matter yeah. movement, Sandra Bland and all of the other mothers come and speak. She had more officers of the law uh, present and speaking at her convention in the RNC, et cetera. So I think there's, you know, there's something here where Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton have a lot of repenting to do with black America. And if there's any politician that black Americans can move uh, because of what they have done to them in th through policy, it's Bill and Hillary Clinton. So black Americans, from the standpoint of political science, have precisely Hillary Clinton who they need to move her to, to make up for the harms that they have done against the black community since 1991-92. From Ricky Ray Rector to Sister Soldier to these games they play with this strategy, look this up and Google it, this strategy known as symbolic distance. It's the strategy Bill Clinton used in 1990 with black Americans. Go to Jesse Jackson's uh, Operation Push event, put your finger in Jesse's face so white, to show white America you're not a, a McGovern or a Humphrey liberal and so, DNC Democrat. See, and that's what, you, you, we're talking about Donald Trump doing this now, talking to white audiences about black situations. I was Bill Clinton is the father yeah. of this thing.
He's the architect of talking, to black Amer talking down to black America in, in, you know, with white audiences yeah. and expecting a positive return. And of course, sadly, black people like Toni Morrison bought into this and embraced and donned um, uh, Bill Clinton as the first black president, unfortunately. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, I was gonna of course ask about Donald Trump's. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask about Donald Trump's uh, exact that whole thing, his his speech, his telling African American audiences, uh, you know. In, in the eighties, we to used lose. to say, and in the nineties, we used to say, "Crack is whack." And Donald Trump talking to Black Americans about anything other than, like Hillary, I'm sorry for what I've done, um, is the only conversation he could possibly have. Well, and, and but really, right along to your point this morning on on National Public Radio, as I was coming into work, they were basically making the point of. Yeah, he's really not talking to black audiences. Yeah, yeah. He's talking to yeah. suburban white yeah. Republicans yeah. who don't yeah. really, who don't feel qu yeah. comfortable with his more inflammatory language. Yeah. So he's basically saying, talking right. to them, because, saying, because, "No, no, no, okay, I'm not, you know, going to yeah. be totally whack." Yeah. There's a right of, I would say, a right of center conservatism in America generally. I mean, we might be moving in a different direction, but I think that you know Donald Trump understands that the the silent majority of Richard Nixon definitely agrees on law and order issues in general, and that's why Trump, along with all these other acts of individual acts of desperation that we're seeing in terms of the Breitbart and the Roger Ailes pivot, is this pivot suddenly to talk to people that have told you. Historically, they despise you. Donald Trump is known for 40 years, especially a New Yorker like me, a black New Yorker. We knew as a, as a teenager, Donald Trump haunted people like me. When he took out a full page ad in the New York Times, the Daily News, and, New York, and the New York Times, and the Daily News and Newsday, and called for the death penalty of those five young men who gave up a combination of 100 years of their lives. For Donald Trump, and Donald Trump was the tribune and the champion, he and Rudy Giuliani, the, the We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, feel they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. 
and uh, and you know don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Let me explain this to you. <laughs> the, the, the last thing... All Donald Trump needed to do to turn black America off was have Rudy Giuliani introduce him. After that, the conversation was over, and everything coming out of Donald Trump's mouth is wah, 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 wah. Because black America saw Rudy Giuliani, who locally, at the local level of New York politics, he and Trump were a part of a lynch mob. Do you hear me? Giuliani and Trump were a lynch mob against those five young boys, those teenagers in New York City who were innocent of their crimes, and none of them have apologized for what they did to these young men. We're talking about the so-called Central Park jogger case, right? Yes. And so, and so, so, so this game of people asking me, like last night on Facebook, a friend of a friend asked me, what has Donald Trump done to be racist? I'm like, if I have to explain that to you, I can't. If I have to tell you in this room that where and how Donald Trump is a racist, I cannot tell you because you would never understand it. And so to me at this point, um, it's, it's something that I think uh, Trump is going to have to deal with. Let me say this real quick and I'll shut up. Is the Asian population, you know, what no one's really talking about is how Asian voters are watching what's happening with Trump. And the numbers, I have them all here, I won't go over them in detail, but Asians are enrolling. Their numbers have doubled from 2 million to 4 million voters over 12 Registered. to 16. They are overwhelmingly moving toward the Democratic Party. It, uh, um, uh, uh, continental Asians, uh, Indians, uh, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, all of them in the high 70s approval of Obama and in the high 70s of disapproval of Donald Trump, in the high 60s of approval of Hillary Clinton across the board in every possible category. And what Donald Trump and the Republicans fail to understand is that when you offend other racial minorities, the Asian population doesn't say much of anything, but they interpret these signals as anti-Asian and anti-immigrant as well. And the largest group of Muslims in the world are not Arabs. They make up about 6% of the world's Muslims. The majority of the world's Muslims are Asians and Indians. Yeah. Indian yeah. Asians. Yeah. And so yeah. he's sitting around here offending, thinking he offended Arabs. And all the while, he's sitting here offending people that are going to have an impact on Hawaii, New York, and California voting. So when you say uh, immigration is bad or you know, build that wall... The Asian voters are saying, okay, Trump, we're going to build a wall, all right, around Trump Tower and put you back in it. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to our next topic, and that is actually to bring it a bit more locally to California. Um, and I, there's a number of things I want to talk about in California politics, but I wanted to kind of jump off on you know, something we see on the news every day, which is the latest reports on the wildfires and, and uh, uh, Governor Brown tying this to you know, his climate change initiatives. He's not... He's had some problems getting some of that stuff through. Um, I want to start with Carson. <laughs> Give the governor a grade on, on how he's handling, let's start with the climate change, you know, the, the wildfires. This has not been a good year for him, um, <laughs> which is odd, given the fact that he is such a skilled politician, yeah. skilled statesman, has amazing approval numbers. I mean, any governor would you know, kill for the numbers that he's, uh, he keeps on posting. Um, and the legislature is still eh. I mean, like, no one really likes the legislature. Uh, so the fact that he isn't really kind of getting his agenda 
um, smoothly pushed through is um, quite amazing, especially given the fact that he has something like $20 million in a bank account for ballot initiatives that he could spend anywhere he really wants to. There's a great uh, article that came out today, I think it was in the Merc uh, San Jose Mercury, about how like these ballot initiative campaign, uh, campaign accounts are kind of fudgeable. Um, you know, politicians use them not really for the ballot initiative, uh, supporting or opposing it. Um, so Jerry Brown has a lot of leverage with that money. He doesn't have to spend it for, for opposing or, uh, or supporting a ballot, a ballot measure on the ballot. Um, so, so let's kind of pull back. You know, what's happening? I mean, I, as I was just on my way up here today, I saw uh, AB 197, probably means nothing to most people in the, in the state. Um, it is uh, a, a kind of a random... Um, piece of, legislate, uh, piece of um, legislation that would essentially create oversight over the California Air Res Resources Board, plus also some other things related to kind of the climate change actions, the cap and trade uh, stuff happening in California. Um, it was, last time I checked, it was on call in the state Senate, uh, which means that it's not, it's just under the number of votes. They're trying to, like, the Democrats are trying to get a few kind of remaining people who haven't voted yet to vote yes or no. For them, hopefully, yes. The, the, why this is important, this random piece of legislation is important, is because it's linked currently as written to SB 32, which is kind of the next generation of AB 32, which created cap and trade in California. If SB 32 or AB 197, if either of them don't pass, the other one can't go into effect. Mm. Um, now, of course, it could be either one could be amended later on on the floor, but it's highly unlikely. So the fact that AB 197 is on call right now, or at least it was um, a few hours ago, suggests that there's still a lot of hesitancy within the state legislature on these major climate change issues, um, which is quite surprising given the fact that the Democrats control the majority, <laughs> very aggressively control the majority. I mean, they're just one seat away from a supermajority in the Senate, three seats away in the Assembly. So I mean, they have a lot of votes at their disposal. Um, and uh, so this isn't like a, oh, Republicans are being evil here. Yes, they're, they're all voting no on it. Uh, but a lot of Democrats aren't voting yes on it either. They're abstaining, uh, most of them, mm -hmm. instead of voting no. So this is a huge setback because he has, uh, Governor Brown has made climate change a, a massive component of his uh, you know, Jerry Brown 2.0 um, sort of uh, government. Does he scene. have any other agenda at this point? No. It, it seems it, like that's all he talks about. He talks about. And I'm not saying it's, I mean, look, it's important, obviously. But, um, but I mean, aren't there that's the, roads and things? That's the kicker, too. There are some serious problems in this state. Um, let's, I mean, roads being the first, bridges, you know, all of our crumbling infrastructure, which was the, the pride and joy of his father. Um, right. We have massive water problems. Yes, the drought has subsided, but we're still in a we, we're still in a drought. FYI, I mean, the, so don't go like <laughs> turning on your faucets, leaving the house. We're still in a drought. Um, yet nothing has really been done on on that matter. They've passed this, you know, they've done with this, you know, twenty five percent mandate cuts, but. It, Again, it's not doing anything really to impact the drought. We have unfunded pension liabilities that are ballooning out of control. We have, uh, you know, just name it. We have so many poverty. We have housing affordability. I mean, it's crazy that there's so much time spent. There's, there were f over 5,000 bills introduced in the 2015-2016 uh, legislative session. 5,000 bills. Bills, constitutional amendments, and resolutions. Um, 
how many of those actually try to tackle any of the major long-term systemic problems facing the state? If, if I had to guess, probably a few hundred, if that. If that. I mean, and, and those things were kind of around the edges sort of fixes. They weren't really true systemic fundamental changes, reforms to the problems that we're facing, that our children will be facing, that my generation will be facing, that my, my children's generation will be facing. Um, and it's just kind of like they're patting themselves on the back because they, they, they did this or they did that. They passed this resolution. You know, whoop-de-doo. Well, and, and, <laughs> and, and if a governor with as high approval ratings and, frankly, as much persuasive and bully pulpit power right. as, as Jerry Brown can't tackle some of those really big things, um, you know, is, is, is Gavin Newsom or whoever else might uh, succeed him going to be any more successful? Exactly. That's the big question. You know, the big question is, I think for Democrats in general, can they get to the supermajority um, in the state legislature after this coming election? Very probable. Um, and do they just kind of wait to kind of tackle these issues the way that they want to uh, with basically a, a um, veto uh, without being able to be vetoed by the next governor or Jerry Brown um, without having to ask the Republicans for um, a single vote or two votes here or there. Um, so that's, that's the big question. I think the biggest, the biggest disappointment of this legislative session, in my opinion, was, and this just happened this week, um, is the, the fact that Governor Brown's by right reforms um, are dead in the water. Okay, and you, you might need to explain yeah. briefly what that means. By right is delicious, <laughs> by the way. By I don't right, know what you're so mad about. By right, is, by, right. <laughs> by right is like the holy grail when it comes to housing affordability um, and something that keeps on holding California back. Essentially what by right is, is any development that meets the, the current land use zoning ordinances that are on the books, if it meets those, complies with those, then it goes immediately to administrative review um, and gets permitting, kind of the proposal goes through the process. California is one of very few states that doesn't have by right just as the default. Um, so any, the, regardless of the land use zoning ordinances that are in any locality, um, every single proposal has to not only get administratively reviewed, uh, but also politically legislative reviewed. So either by, by the whole host of commissions that might be de dealing with the, the proposal, and then also a city council board of supervisors. Um, it creates multiple pockets of opposition that basically mucks up the whole development process, delays the whole process, um, and then is truly actually designed to kill development at the end of the day. Institutionalized NIMBYism. Exactly, exactly. Um, now, and, and his proposal was that uh, there are some exceptions, but basically if the, this you know, multifamily development met those conditions and had, uh, I think, at least 20% affordable housing, <laughs> yeah. however that's defined locally, um, it would be, it would be, uh, it would qualify for this streamlining, yeah. I guess, of the process. And it was voted, or was it actually it voted was, on? It, or it, just... it never, never made it to the floor, never made it to a committee uh, because of opposition amongst environmentalists who are, who are concerned about the CEQA exemption that would be kind of attached to it. Um, and actually, environmentalists don't like the in infill development e either uh, for s some reason that is really beyond me, to be honest, because it's actually the way to really reduce carbon emissions. Yeah, if it's not built in there, it's going to be built yeah. out in a suburb. Um, and then also, labor unions didn't like it also. Um, so now, it Carson, it. you are on record as being very anti-initiative. Yes. Like voter initiative, would this kind of thing, this kind of secret reform, this kind of affordable housing tied to secret reform, this buy right, um, would that be the kind of thing that would need to be on the ballot <laughs> since it's clear that it offends so many entrenched interests 
in Sacramento? I, because I think if you put something like that on the yeah. ballot, like well, you could sail through if you're building affordable housing, people are like, yes, <laughs> you know, like this is, it would be a fairly um, popular thing. Dang. Would you be willing to, would to, I be <laughs> to bend your rule just a little? You're being recorded. It depends on <laughs> how the initiative is worded. Um, no, at, at the end of the day, most initiatives um, are worded are not well thought out plans. Um, so that's why I always have a big problem with them. Um, this is an an idea of reform that warrants probably something of the initiative, um, where the initiative could be very useful. Uh, but at the end of the day, it really depends on kind of how the proposal is is worded. I look forward to your draft. Um, but <laughs> did the, yeah. the thing here is, and this is one of the this is one of the biggest problems I think that is facing California particularly, but housing all across the country. Um, it's this co concept of local control. Um, localities across the country are the ones who determine zoning, developments, any anything. Um, and the fact that they just don't like the idea of the state coming in or even a regional <laughs> board coming in and kind of telling them what they can and cannot do with what they consider their land. Um, it, it's, it's an anomaly to, I think, the United States in many respects, but it's even more so anomaly to California. Our friends up you know, north of us in Washington State, they have statewide kind of appeal boards. Massachusetts also has an appeal board. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with, but work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. Uh, where if you don't like what your locality is doing, you can appeal up to the state level and then they can force the locality to do something. It kind of goes to this, this level, again, I'm a, I'm a policy analyst. Uh, analyst. You, know, you, want the, the, you want the level of government determining the, the, the policy that's going to most effectively and efficiently implement it or pass it. You would never think to kind of do national security at the local level. 
because that just makes no sense. <laughs> like, yeah, like San Francisco is going to have its own little army, and so is so is uh, Atherton and Belmont so and some Hillsborough. Would say, some would and say San Francisco and Berkeley think they have their own. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, no one thinks that's a rational way to do national security. Um, is it, it? It's the the history of housing, especially in California, especially in the coastal part of California, has proven that localities just cannot implement land use and zoning rules efficiently and effectively for the greater good of the, of the entire society, both the current residents and future residents. Well, and, and when it comes to affordable housing, um, you know, federal government has largely washed its hands yes. of anything. You, they, they enable it through shallow subsidies of like tax credits and things like that, but they're not out there financing and, and, and building things. Um, and of course, this week here in San Francisco, HUD just rejected uh, the supervisors uh, plan to try to thwart the outflow of African-Americans and other groups, especially senior citizens out of the city. Uh, and the irony is it was the black movement that created, you know, that led to the CCA Fair Housing <laughs> Act that has run up against the attempt to thwart uh, the outflow of blacks. So it's like segregation laws limited their access to opportunities in terms of housing. And then these laws were created to prevent this kind of discrimination. And then it's almost like affirmative action. It ends up being used against a group that mobilized to get this policy in their behalf. And they got turned back on them and been used to the advantage of others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the unfortunate thing. Well, and, and, and as far as the state being a, an, an enabler, a creator of, I mean, affordable housing, Governor Brown made it really clear back in June he sees it as a waste of money. I mean, he pretty much said as much to the Los Angeles Times um, that, you know, it's, it's a waste. This is a supply and demand problem, which, which... And Willie Brown's on the record, too, with the same position. Oh, is, is, Willie is, Brown here in San Francisco has the same attitude of inevitability, that there's a new majority, and it would const be constitutive of Asian, American, you know, San Franciscans, yeah. um, whites, so, so I, and I, I, I know someone who has actually started two different uh, affordable housing nonprofits right. uh, and, and used to publish the affordable housing magazine. He was my boss, so uh, take that into to consideration. But he's, he was always a fan of Willie Brown because Willie Brown pushed through a number of affordable housing Sure projects here and he, he that he was always saying yeah. look and, and really what he was doing was going over the lo the, right. the 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 local complaints and saying we're going to do this um and so for affordable housing you know yeah. that's that's not a I, I think a controversy with Willie Brown I think it is the question of whether or not there should be artificial attempts to try to stave the outflow of people yeah. moving out. that's what he took issue with and feels like and he's on record for years of saying look this is just the way it is just let sure. it be but the, 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 the biggest problem, especially for the Bay Area, is this isn't a new problem. It's, it's something that the localities up and down the peninsula on the East Bay in Marin County um, have been delinquent on building housing for decades. And so now it's become this, this issue that's really kind of popped in their faces. And the affordability issue is so severe that they're trying to scramble if at all, um, to do something, and there's not enough for them to actually be able to do. It's really hard to speed up projects. I mean, e even if, you know, I, I live in the city of Mountain View, even if the city of Mountain View were to approve 10,000 new units of any kind, affordable, not affordable, any, it, you're still looking at, you know, a year at best, probably two to three years of those units hitting the market. Um, that's not going to really help the situation now. So, from a po political standpoint, these, you know, these local elected officials want something immediate. 
but actually, unfortunately, there's nothing immediate that can actually happen for them. Um, this is something that their predecessors really have kind of screwed them over with, um, yeah, but it needs to happen. Well, yeah, just back at the local level in San Francisco, I don't know if any of you have seen today's Examiner, but it has this question and this issue of uh, our rents you know, dropping in San Francisco, and there's some, it's sort of a mixed response that in some places there are, where they highlight a case of a, a, a couple who got an $1,800 studio with a kitchen and, um, and you know, other amenities, yeah. I think, in Soma. Uh, so that was a big deal for them. And this is, I guess, you know, the, the beginning of a trend of, of lower rents. <laughs> There's certainly, because I, mean, I, I heard some comments when you were talking about, you know, actual building, there hasn't been enough. And I think people in San Francisco are kind of thinking, wait a minute, I'm seeing all of these Big, you know, you drive up market, especially near Castro, every corner you turn around, there's a whole nother new one. Um, those have finally, from, from at least my reporting, have started to have a, a small impact on the high end, right? Because a lot of these were uh, market rate and, and, and even luxury condos. So pricing has started to be affected. The thing is, the numbers of, of how how many, I think the city analyst or comptroller, I don't know the exact title, he said we're basically 100,000 units short of what we would need before the supply and demand really kicked in and we could be, you know, people can start talking about affordable stuff. I'm going to put you all to sleep with my housing stuff, so <laughs> I'll, I'll move along. Let's try to get in a, a few short things before we get to the news quiz. Let's try to get Melissa in here. <laughs> I've, I've talked enough. <laughs> um, naked Trump statues. Did anyone here actually go and see the one in Castro? Two people. Uh, what did you think? Was this, uh, we, we actually did the question out there on this. Um, did you, was this inappropriate? Was it fair game? Was it, what, what are your thoughts? Melissa? I didn't think it was cool. Honestly, you know, if, if it was a Hillary Clinton statue, right, right, right. I think people would be up in arms. I think it was kind of mean in a way that is, the kind of thing people say they don't like about Donald Trump. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, you know, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like if you don't like Donald Trump, you know, go high. Um, and it, it felt like it was going low. And I, um, you know, and it, it had smacked of, of, of body shaming yeah. and aging issues. Um, that, uh, that I didn't think was and, and of course, at all. Th I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, the sexism implicit in him, you know, having a very, you know, invisible, you know, organ, et cetera. I'm trying to be as PG as I can. Um, also, also was offensive in, in the implication that, you know, if you don't have any, you know, cojones, you therefore are not strong, which yeah. offends women in many ways. Well, it, you it know? Was intended so that was also a yeah, colleague of mine who does a gender and sexuality studies at USF wrote a piece and she basically talked about the way in which this is doing the very thing that we despise in terms of you know, shaming of people's yeah. bodies, et cetera. And how are you any better than Donald Trump if you uh, put him out piggishly in the way in which he's put other groups and people out piggishly? And, and frankly, you know, every day he gives liberals a reason to be mad at him. Like, we don't need to make things up, <laughs> right? We don't need to, like, invent, and, and like, invent ways to make fun of him. You yeah. know, like, there's, right, right, there's right. plenty right. of non-physical <laughs> reasons and ways that... Um, that that Democrats can you know can take aim at Trump without without going there. 
So never Trump isn't the one that put those out there. It was no. uh, it was actually an anarchist group, I think. Oh, right, I right, right, right. So and what, what were they? What was that? What did that accomplish? Like, right. I, I think by having that categorization of themselves, they don't have to explain. But That's you also true. see a lot <laughs> of sure. like online depictions of Trump with uh, without a hairpiece. Oh, sure. To try to show him as not nearly as as we all have gotten used to seeing him to sort of show what's really going on under there to see Trump in a more, a less authoritative, less powerful way. I, I thought way I was trying so to point out the, the incredible power and beauty of bald people. Hey, <laughs> and I, you have yeah, no that, problem with it. That's another interpretation. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it, but of course, <laughs> they were trying to make him look bad. <laughs> Uh, briefly, actually, kind of something, about, we, we touched on the economy. Remember 1992, it's the economy, stupid. How big is that a or the driving force in the elections you know this year um any thoughts on that i mean is it the overwhelming thing or things are kind of running along smoothly so people are voting on some of these issues of you know you mentioned mm -hmm. kind of the sense of falling apart and all that kind of stuff yeah i think different different parts of the electorate are, are, are interested in different things when i was talking about asians in general there's also a breakdown by age and gender sure. and um uh, and young people 18 to 34 amongst asians in general um, supported Barack Obama in the high 80s, really? um, and yet Asians and you know Asians of all co cohorts it, it drops down to about 60 percent. So you know you have uh, things going on. I think uh, sure. in the subtext of, of the larger questions and issues. Melissa, what do you think? I, I think the economy, and because I think look if you look at sort of the three biggest issues, the economy, immigration, and national security. Um, you know, immigration is tied into the economy, right? So much of that is related to the, the idea that the reason wages are kept artificially sure. low is because you've got people working off the books, things like that. I think those two anxieties go together. I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of these things where I'm like, when was it ever not the economy? I would really would like to have lived then. Um, <laughs> my whole life, it's always been the economy. Um, but, and, and I think it is this year, and I think you see that in, in the ancillary um, subjects that are catching on as well, because I think for people, look, they're, for, for some people, Immigration has a different issue, you know, has other, you know, sort of more race-based uh, or, or color-based or ethnicity-based issues. But for a lot of folks, it really is an economic, uh, an economic one. Uh, and so it, they, they sort of tie together. Carson? Yeah, Melissa, I mean, hit on the nose. And, and James brought up something earlier about the, the, the Clinton presidency being kind of the, the economy. Um, the next Clinton presidency is going to have the economy, but I think in a very different way than Bill had. I mean, we we are now in the 87th or going into the 87th month of the expansion from the Great Recession. Um, the average post-World War II expansion has been 58 months. So, you know, for, again, better or worse, for, you know, no one's really at fault, but business cycles ebb and flow we are right now in one of the longest expansions it's been tepid for most a lot of people um but still it's an expansion nonetheless and it's gonna reverse at some point and how big it's gonna reverse is you know again up for debate uh but whoever's president next is most likely going to have a a recession of some sort um under their presidency and they're gonna have to deal with it and there's something called the misery index that yeah. political scientists look at which is a sort of measuring of the inflation rate and the unemployment rate at, during an election cycle and the extent to which those things are coupled and people actually feel them and feel miserable around the time of election tends to affect them to either go mobile mo, you know motivates them to go vote or motivates them or discourages them yeah. uh, from voting uh, altogether. So right now with Barack Obama reaching Ronald Reagan, Ike Eisenhower's second term 
um, you know, numbers of approval. I mean, the conservatives don't realize that Barack Obama has been a lame duck for over a year, and they continue to act like this man still has power. They're going to miss him when he's gone. Because <laughs> they actually still treat Obama like he still has power. It's like, no, this guy is on his way out. He's going to China. He's going to Cuba. He's but chilling. You know something? Yeah. I watch him. I think he looks like he's enjoying his job. Yes. For the first time. Because he's like, done. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.